Good evening. Good evening and thank you for coming tonight. I am Tim Borstelman, the E.N. and Katherine Thompson Professor of Modern World History here at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. I'm honored to welcome you tonight to the E.N. Thompson Forum on, on World Issues. For more than 20 years, the university has partnered with the Cooper Foundation and the Lead Center for Performing Arts to bring to Lincoln insightful speakers to engage both the University of Nebraska community and the general public in important issues that affect all of us in the contemporary world. This lecture series is named in honor of the late E.N. Jack Thompson, and few individuals were as supportive of the University of Nebraska as was Jack Thompson. We are grateful to Art, to Carol, and to the rest of the Thompson family for the, and to the Cooper Foundation for their ongoing support of this lecture series. It is my distinct pleasure to announce that tonight's lecture is the annual Chuck and Linda Wilson Dialogue. Dr. Chuck Wilson is a retired cardiologist who served on the University of Nebraska Board of Regents for many years. His wife, Linda, served on the Lincoln City Council uh, and on the Public Building Commission. Chuck and Linda's goal in creating this dialogue is to present different perspectives on critically important contemporary issues. As for the format of tonight's Wilson Dialogue, first, our two distinguished speakers will deliver opening statements of about 15 minutes each. Then they will engage in a discussion based on a few questions that I will ask them. And you, the audience, will have the opportunity to ask questions of these experts via note cards uh, that will be distributed by the ushers later in the program. Finally, the speakers will deliver brief opening closing statements. Tonight, we have the honor of hearing from two of the world's leading experts on the current state of the United States military. Our first speaker, Derek Chalet, is a Lincoln native, a graduate of Lincoln Southeast High School and Cornell University, and a former special assistant to the president and senior director for strategic planning on the National Security Council staff. He is currently the Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, a position in which he serves as a principal advisor to Secretary of Defense Chuck Hagel on international security strategy and policy issues. One smiles to think of so much level-headed Nebraskan influence on the Pentagon. Assistant Secretary Chalet is also the author and co-author of several books on U.S. foreign relations. Our second speaker this evening is Andrew Basevich a professor of international relations and history at Boston University. Professor Basevich served in the U.S. Army during the Vietnam War, as well as in Germany and in the Persian Gulf before retiring as a colonel in the early 1990s. He is a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point and holds a Ph.D. in history from Princeton University. He has published several widely read books on American foreign policy and military history, the most recent of which is entitled Breach of Trust, How Americans Failed Their Soldiers and Their Country. Professor Basevich has developed a well-deserved reputation as one of the most clear-eyed critics of American politics and U.S. foreign policy. Let me just announce finally, uh, before we get going here, that books by both Professor Basevich and uh, Assistant Secretary Chalet will be available for sale in the lobby following this dialogue. 
So please uh, join me now in welcoming Andrew Basevich and Derek Chalet. Thank you, thank you. It is truly my honor uh, to be with all of you tonight. It's great to be home in Lincoln with so many family and friends here. And although I've lived in Washington, D.C. for a better part of 20 years, I remain a proud Nebraskan. And I have the privilege of working with another proud Nebraskan, our state's former senator, and now our country's terrific Secretary of Defense, Chuck Hagel. During the past year, I've traveled the world with Secretary Hagel to the Middle East, to Europe, to Asia, and I've watched him tackle so many tough issues, from Syria and Iran to the defense budget. And while I'm certainly a little biased, I can tell you that the American people are fortunate to have a Nebraskan as Secretary of Defense. It's very special for me to be on the UNL campus, a place where I spent pretty much every fall Saturday of my childhood growing up in Memorial Stadium. Uh, I'm also very proud to be here uh, as part of the Thompson Forum, and I thank the, the Wilson family uh, for their generosity in putting this dialogue together, and I thank the Thompson family. Uh, it's, it's very special for me to be here at a, in an event named after a family that I've considered friends since the early 1980s. I also feel privileged to share the stage with Professor Borstman. Uh, I'm sure Tim doesn't remember this, but I first met him in the early 1990s when I was at Cornell and he was a, a young faculty member, and I recall attending an evening seminar with him in a dingy Cornell student lounge uh, on American foreign policy, and so I'm very, very glad to be back sharing the stage with him now for yet another talk on American foreign policy, and I'm glad we're doing it in a place that looks and feels a little different than the uh, Cornell Student Lounge. Um, and finally, I I'm deeply honored to be here uh, with Professor Basevich, Andrew Basevich, who's one of the brightest and most compelling thinkers on military affairs and American foreign policy we have. Andy is someone who you don't always have to agree with, uh, but you will always learn from. I recall being in a meeting uh, with Secretary Hagel and the chairman of our Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, General Marty Dempsey, and the chairman brought up an op-ed that was in that day's news clips that, that Professor Basevich had written. Uh, I can't recall the subject of the op-ed, but I'm pretty sure it was criticizing our policy, and, and I'm pretty sure it stung. Uh, but I remember that both the chairman and the secretary remarking that they, that they knew you and that they admired you and that they both agreed that you're a very smart guy. Uh, so I can assure all of you uh, that Andrew Basevich is someone taken very seriously at the highest levels of our government uh, and I look forward to learning from him tonight. Uh, it's very good for me to be out of the Washington DC bubble for a couple days. Uh, President Obama's first Secretary of Defense Robert Gates, who was a proud Kansan, uh, always made it a habit to get out of Washington every now and then and, and speak to audiences like this. Uh, Secretary Gates kept a healthy Midwestern perspective on our nation's capital, and it's a perspective that I have always tried to remember and keep in mind as I go about my work. He used to observe that Washington is a city where those who travel the high road of humility encounter very little traffic where people often say, I will double cross that bridge when I come to it. <laughs> and uh, where you can see many prominent people walking down the street, walking down Lover's Lane, holding their own hands. <laughs> so uh, keeping those important insights in mind, I'll use my opening comments to focus on three areas that have defined U.S. defense policy during the past five years. First, winding down the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Second, 
adjusting defense spending to new budget constraints while ensuring that we have a defense strategy that serves our national security interests. And third, recalibrating the role of military power in America's foreign policy alongside diplomacy and development. I'll start with the highest national security priority President Obama faced when he came into office, dealing with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. In February 2009, the United States had been at war for the better part of a decade, which soon became the longest period of war in our nation's history. There were 180,000 American men and women serving in Iraq and Afghanistan, including from the Nebraska National Guard. And few commentators or common citizens believed at the time that either conflict was going particularly well. Now, as we all remember, the Iraq War had been a bitter issue for our country and had been the central question of the 2008 presidential campaign. Then-candidate Obama promised to execute a responsible withdrawal, withdrawal of U.S. forces from Iraq, and in his first major speech as president in March 2009, he announced a new strategy to end the combat mission by removing all troops by the end of 2011. In Afghanistan, the president wanted to regain the upper hand. So he surged military forces while simultaneously narrowing the mission to a tight focus on disrupting, dismantling, and defeating al-Qaeda. The fight in Afghanistan has been very tough. Over 3,400 lives have been lost from the United States and our partner nations in Afghanistan, including 14 Nebraskans. But the tide of war is receding. In Iraq, all U.S. forces left at the end of 2011. And now we are developing what we at the Pentagon call a normal defense relationship with the Iraqis. It's very difficult, but we are helping the Iraqis with advice and equipment needs. And in Afghanistan, nearly 60,000 U.S. troops have come home. And the 34,000 that remain today will withdraw by the end of the year. Now, if the Afghan government is willing, the United States and many of our global partners could maintain a small presence in Afghanistan to help train, advise, and assist the Afghan forces and to help with counterterrorism. The costs of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan have been profound in both blood and treasure. Nearly 7,000 Americans have paid the ultimate sacrifice and tens of thousands carry the physical and psychological wounds of war. But the financial costs have been profound as well. Some estimate that in the end, these wars will have cost nearly $6 trillion of taxpayer money and disability and medical costs will continue for decades. Now, to be sure, many of these financial costs were necessary to get the equipment and needs to the warfighter. But during the decade after 9-11, the defense budget ballooned to unsustainable levels, particularly after the financial crisis struck in 2008 and our nation's deficits grew so rapidly. That's why the Obama administration has set out to reform defense spending. For the last five years, Pentagon leaders have had to do what every family does when money gets tight. They've set priorities. They've cut spending on things that are lower priorities or aren't truly needed. This process began under Secretary of Defense Gates in 2009 when he set out to cut or curtail more than 30 major military modernization programs that were growing too costly, taking too long to develop, or were poorly suited to current needs. If these systems had been pursued to completion, they would have cost the taxpayers more than $300 million. Secretary Gates also began cutting the Pentagon's bloated budget in order to defend, direct more money to real military capabilities. These defense reform efforts continued under President Obama's second Secretary of Defense, Leon Panetta, and continue today under Secretary Hagel. Now, Secretary Panetta, several years ago, was only a month into the job in August 2011 when Congress enacted a law that required the Pentagon to cut $487 billion, now that's billion with a B, from its budget over the next decade. 
And last year, on Secretary Hagel's second day at the Pentagon, an additional round of steep, abrupt cuts were implemented under this crazy legislative mechanism that we call sequester. Now, sequester is a, is a phrase that only folks in Washington can come up with, but what it meant was that a new round of cuts of about $50 billion over 10 years had to be made without any discretion or ability to change them. And so although this bipartisan budget agreement that was passed by our Congress last December gives DOD some relief from sequestration, Secretary Hagel still has to implement a total of $70 billion in additional cuts during the next two years. So all three secretaries of defense under President Obama have implemented spending cuts over the last five years, have recognized the central fact that this is not just a math exercise, that the U.S. still has global interests and responsibilities, and other nations are modernizing their militaries and challenging our traditional technological superiority in, in spheres like air, sea, cyber, and even space. So we have worked hard to align our defense strategy with this new fiscal reality. Fundamentally, strategy is about choices and having to do with less helps clarify priorities and trade-offs. With this in mind, during the past several years, the administration has undertaken several major strategic reviews to line our strategy with our budget and our national highest security priorities. Now, these efforts are driven all toward the same goal, to define a defense policy that protects our national security interests with sustainable resources. Next month, the President will submit to the Congress a new budget which will include a five-year defense spending plan. And this will be the first defense spending plan after the 13 years of post-9-11 conflict. Now, while I can't share any particulars of that budget with you tonight, I would expect that this will ex uh, reflect six strategic priorities that Secretary Hagel first outlined in a speech that he gave in Washington last fall. First, the Pentagon will continue to focus on institutional reform. Secretary Hagel has already announced a 20% reduction in the department's major headquarters beginning in his own office, the Office of the Secretary of Defense. Second, as we come out of more than a decade of war, the military will reassess the assumptions and scenarios for which it organizes, trains, and equips, recognizes, recognizing that adva the advances made by global rivals and potential adversaries. Third, the military will focus on addressing the readiness challenges caused by sequestration in order to avoid a hollow force like we had after Vietnam, a force that lacks sufficient training and equipment to accomplish its assigned missions. Fourth, the military will protect investments in emerging military capabilities, especially space, cyber, special operations, and intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. Fifth, Secretary Hagel has made very clear that he wants the military to stay in balance even as resources come down to have the right mix of forces in the right places around the world to accomplish the most important and most likely missions of the future. And six, Secretary Hagel has said that we will have to achieve savings in military compensation, which has grown 40% above the private sector since 2011 in order to adequately fund training and modernization. Otherwise, we risk becoming a force that is well compensated but poorly trained and equipped. In President Obama's State of the Union address just last month, he made clear that America must move off a permanent war footing. A key part of that is putting the budget and the strategy on a sustainable course. But it also means recalibrating the role of military power and the use of force in America's national security policy by elevating the role of diplomacy and development and by being very judicious about the use of force. Make no mistake, the world remains a very dangerous place. And at times, military force will be necessary to protect our interests. During the past five years, we have taken the fight to Al-Qaeda and terrorist networks, 
we have decimated al-Qaeda's top leadership, including Osama bin Laden. Now, this doesn't mean that using military force is always the best way to achieve our goals, nor should the use of force be unlimited. Consider two examples from the recent past, Libya and Syria. In Libya three years ago, as Gaddafi's forces threatened the opposition, potentially wiping out hundreds of thousands of civilians, the United States and our key allies intervened. But rather than invade Libya with hundreds of thousands of troops like we did in Iraq, the US and our partners used air power to stop Gaddafi, leading to his overthrow. From the time President Obama decided to intervene, he made very clear that the role, the role the US should play must be limited to its unique capabilities, such as intelligence, airlift, refueling, and precision, precision munitions, and that we needed to work to get other countries to step up, which they did. It's true, the United States provided the bulk of the military muscle in the beginning, but the operation demonstrated the value for our allies to maintain highly capable militaries that plan, train, and equip together. Now, it might be surprising to some, but overall, US forces flew just more than 10% of the strike missions in Libya, while the UK and France flew nearly half. Simply put, Libya was not America's fight alone, and it showed that leading is not always about charging ahead, but it is often about enabling collective action. And then last summer, in Syria, the Assad regime used chemical weapons to kill over 1,300 innocent civilians outside Damascus. After these horrific attacks, the president ordered the Pentagon to develop plans to use force to punish Assad, conducting airstrikes that would degrade and deter his military's capability, capability and willingness to conduct further chemical weapons attacks. Now, as we prepared for military action, positioning ships and planes uh, into position to strike, the president made the bold decision to seek congressional authorization for the use of force. He believed that while, as a constitutional matter, presidents reserve the right to use the military on their own, the country is always stronger if we are unified and use force with the support of the Congress, and through the Congress, the American people. Now, I was one of the officials uh, assigned to make the case uh, to the Congress uh, for the use of force resolution. So I spent the better part of two weeks on Capitol Hill meeting with members of the House and the Senate and their staffs. I can attest to you that the system worked. The Congress took its job very seriously, gathering information, asking thoughtful questions, and challenging our assumptions. But in the end, congressional authorization for military action proved unnecessary. Our credible threat of force compelled Assad to step down, back down, I should say, giving a chance for diplomacy to step in. To prevent an attack, Assad agreed to a UN Security Council resolution that forced him to give, to give up his chemical weapons. So today, Remarkably, we are on the cusp of achieving something very significant. Syria voluntarily giving up its chemical weapons to be destroyed without a shot being fired. Now there's still a way to go, and Syria still needs to live up to its obligations. But a Syria without chemical weapons makes us all safer. Now I should add as an aside, the destruction process itself to destroy the chemical weapons still requires a unique United States capability, a Navy ship with the system to destroy the chemical weapons at sea. So in Libya, we saw the United States does not have to go it alone. In fact, we're more effective when we focus on using our unique military capabilities and working with others. And in Syria, we saw that military power can be a critical part of diplomacy, and that the true test of influence is when you can, can compel action without force being used. So in conclusion, I'll leave you with this. We are coming out of the longest period of war in American history. And thinking ahead, it is important to remember that our military, although unparalleled in capability, 
should be one of many instruments of our power. Our defense should be agile, flexible, ready, and technologically advanced, all within the limits of reasonable cost. The United States needs to ensure that all instruments of our power, diplomatic, economic, development, our values, and defense, work together to serve our interests and help solve problems. This is what Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, my first boss in the administration, called using smart power. And this is something that my current boss, Secretary of Defense Hagel, believes in deeply. As President Obama said in his State of the Union address a few weeks ago, we must remember that our leadership is defined not just by our defense against threats, but by the enormous opportunities to do good and promote understanding around the globe, to forge greater cooperation, to expand new markets, to free people from fear and from want. And no one is better positioned to take advantage of those opportunities than America. Thank you very much for your time. I look forward to the discussion and your questions. Over to Professor Basevich. I wonder if I could begin with a complaint. I've never visited Lincoln before today. I've been to Nebraska, I think, once in my entire life before today. And I really don't think it's quite fair that I should be pitted against the hometown hero. <laughs> now, I could tell you stories about my Hoosier roots. I'm just not sure it would have the same impact. So I understand my charter to be to reflect on three very specific uh, questions or issues related to basic U.S. national security policy. Two of these questions are sort of of recent vintage one is quite a bit older. So the three things that I'm ultimately going to circle around and talk about. First, what are the implications of relying on what we call the all-volunteer force? More accurately, a professional military. Second, the, the whole question of whether maintaining a global military presence with U.S. forces, U.S. bases scattered in dozens of countries around the world whether that notion still is justified long after the end of the Cold War, which was the event that created this notion in the first place. And third, and this is the old question, what role, if any, does the military-industrial complex play in influencing U.S. national security policy? Before I get to those, I'd like to offer a couple of preliminary reflections, sort of frame my answers to the narrow questions. And I have to say that I, I sit there listening to Secretary Hagel's list of six priorities, which, of course, are President Obama's defense or national security priorities, and there's nothing about them that I would object to. I'd endorse them. A little bit disturbed, I think the cuts in uh, Secretary Hagel's office are going to occur over, like, five years. <clears throat> But nonetheless, a downsizing of headquarters is probably a good idea. My problem, that I hope it'll come, come out in my remarks, is I do think that these proposed reforms constitute a recalibration, an adjustment, whereas my position would be big change is needed. 
at least big change ought to be considered. So preliminary thoughts, point number one. Power confers choice. At least it ought to. And as the most powerful nation in the world, blessed with an astonishingly favorable geopolitical situation, the United States enjoys, or ought to enjoy, considerable freedom of action in deciding how we are going to relate to the rest of the world. And I'd say one of the great failures of policymakers since the end of the Cold War, this is not directed in particular at any administration, but one of the great failures of U.S. policy since the end of the Cold War is the failure to recognize that we do have choices available and that we can exercise choices to go in a different direction. Instead, policymakers claiming that we are the indispensable nation, you've heard that phrase, they have insisted that there really is no alternative but to exercise global leadership. Again, a phrase that you're familiar with. And so in this framework of seeing ourselves as indispensable, of being called upon to exercise global leadership for all practical purposes, we press on. Washington presses on, following a particular azimuth to my mind, insufficiently sensitive to the costs and consequences along the way. Second larger point. How are we to evaluate the exercise of global leadership? Well, I don't want to disregard moral considerations, because they ought to figure in any conversation we have about policy. But that said, it seems to me that the primary basis for evaluating policy must be a pragmatic one. Does policy work? Does it provide a good return on the blood and the treasure expended pursuant to policy objectives? For the whole post-Cold War era, we're talking about three, what, decades, more than three decades now, the big question that we need to confront as citizens. Are the exertions of our national security establishment making us more secure and more prosperous? If the answer is yes, if we are becoming more secure and more prosperous, then we owe a debt of gratitude to our post-Cold War presidents. Both Presidents Bush, President Clinton, and President Obama, and we should press on the course that we are following. If the answer is no, however, then it seems to me it's time for us to rethink basic policy and to try to exercise the choices that should be available to a powerful nation. And I have to tell you that my answer to the question is manifestly no. Our policies are not making us more secure, and they are not making us more prosperous, and they are costing us a lot. Now, unfortunately, and I say this in, as an outside observer, it seems to me that our national security establishment is so invested in a status quo carried over from the Cold War that our leaders lack the creative capacity to produce 
or evaluate alternative approaches, and so we blunder on. Here's the essence of post-Cold War U.S. national security policy expressed in one single sentence. People in Washington believe that through the adroit use of military power, the United States can shape the international order to maintain U.S. global primacy. That's why today, despite the budget cuts that we, that, that we just heard about, that's why today the Pentagon budget is larger in constant dollars than it was at any time during the Cold War. Remember the Cold War? Bipolar order, two superpowers, World War III on the horizon. There ain't no other superpower today. But we're spending more today in constant dollars than we ever did in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. That's why the Department of Defense, that's why U.S. forces are constantly prowling around the world. I don't know if it was the op-ed, but I recently wrote an op-ed that, that, quite frankly, was mocking a U.S. Army initiative called Pacific Pathways. You know, now that we've pulled out of Iraq and we're pulling out of Afghanistan, I'll state this very crudely, it's my own service, out of Iraq, out of Afghanistan, the Army's looking for a reason to justify its existence. If you don't justify your existence, you can't justify your budgetary claim. If you don't justify your budgetary claim, then your status, standing, influence in the realm of national security declines. So Pacific Pathways is an Army proposal to sort of have separate brigades wandering around friendly countries in the Pacific available to help. It's why the Defense Department devotes the vast majority of its efforts not to defending the United States of America, but to projecting military power hither and yon. Remember, after 9-11, whatever else you want to say about 9-11, it was a catastrophic failure of the national security establishment to perform its most essential functions. And what was the response to that failure? create a new cabinet agency that has the job of defending America, called the Department of Homeland Security, so that the Department of Defense, which doesn't particularly focus on defense, could continue to project power around the world. So again, the core question is, is it working? Practically speaking. Well, let's examine the results achieved since the end of the Cold War in the greater Middle East, which has been the focal point of U.S. military activity for nearly a quarter of a century now. Are U.S. efforts making the Islamic world more stable? Are the people living in these quarters, Iraqis, Afghans, Pakistanis, Saudis, and so on, are these people becoming more favorably disposed toward the United States of America? The answers to these questions are no and no. Are wars in this region, large ones like Iraq and Afghanistan, but also smaller engagements in places like Somalia, Yemen, and Libya, will ultimately cost us, you already heard this, trillions of dollars, not billions with a B, 
trillions with a T. What are we getting in return? Not much, in my view. Yet political and military elites seem remarkably reticent when confronting the yawning gap between expectations and outcomes. To do so, to confront that yawning gap between expectations and outcome, would call into question the fundamental premises underlying U.S. policy. And doing so would actually be a start toward identifying strategic alternatives, different choices that a powerful country ought to be able to make in pursuit of its own interests. So back to those three original questions that I was asked to reflect on. First, what are the implications of relying on a professional military? To phrase it in a, what, what are the implications of having abandoned the tradition of the citizen soldier, which was the basis of the American military system going back to the founding of this republic? We abandoned that tradition in the wake of the Vietnam War. Well, I think the most obvious, the most important implication uh, is quite obvious. And that is that we have allowed a gap to develop between the military and society. You know the figures. In a country that does seem to be perpetually at war, 1% of our fellow citizens bear the burden of service and sacrifice while the remaining 99% of us are essentially spectators. This distribution of effort cannot be said to be democratic. And quite frankly, I don't believe it can be said to be moral. But again, the pragmatic question is the one that really counts. Does it work? Does the all-volunteer force work? Does, does relying on a professional military give us the results we want? Does our military win? That is, does it achieve conclusive success accomplishing our stated political objectives? That's what war is all about, using force to achieve political purposes. Well, sadly, the answer is no. We did not win, and we did not even end the Iraq War. U.S. troops may have left Iraq, but the Iraq war continues down to the present moment. All you got to do is take a look at the papers. In my judgment, we will not win the war in Afghanistan. And in all, probab in all probability, when we depart, that war also will not end. Despite the fact that those are the two longest wars in all of American history. So although the all-volunteer force may be admirable in many ways, let me state it clearly, it is admirable in many ways. Our soldiers are admirable in many ways. But the fact of the matter is the all-volunteer force has not proven to be an especially effective instrument of policy. As a country, we know how to start wars. But our military has demonstrated an inability to end wars on our terms. The second of my three questions, does maintaining a global military presence make sense? And the answer, it seems to me, 
is yes, where that presence is both needed and effective. And no, where it is either not needed or not effective. Let me get specific. Europe. The U.S. military presence in Europe is simply not necessary. It is redundant. Threats to European security are, to put it mildly, modest. The Europeans are able to handle those threats to their security, and they should be allowed to do so. Withdrawing U.S. forces just might encourage European countries to grow up and take responsibility for themselves. In the Islamic world, the U.S. military presence has proven to be counterproductive. It incites antagonism. U.S. military power, it seems to me, is largely irrelevant to the problems besetting the greater Middle East. And to persist in thinking otherwise is to squander American power on a futile undertaking. Lowering our military profile in the greater Middle East is an imperative to the limited extent that we can influence the course of events in the region we really ought to examine doing so by using alternative means. And I don't mean drone strikes. The best approach, the best approach, just might be to live up to our ideals and therefore thereby demonstrate that liberal values actually have something to offer to others. Asia, Asia might be another story. There, I could be persuaded that the U.S. military presence is, in fact, stabilizing. Or to put it another way, that a precipitous withdrawal of U.S. forces could easily trigger a destabilizing military competition between China, Japan, South Korea, and others. And we don't want that to happen. On the other hand, a strategy that too obviously aims to contain China as if China were our adversary rather than our banker, could inadvertently produce precisely that competition that we wish to avoid. My point, my point here is, with regard to presence, it's not all or nothing. We should be selective in where we have forces deployed abroad, and, and, and we should be somewhat cautious about doing that, but arguably Asia is a place where it makes sense to continue that presence. Third, my third question, what role does the military-industrial complex play in influencing U.S. policy? My answer would be some influence, but not nearly as much as some people assume. The, the, the size of the defense budget relative to the federal budget is much smaller today than when it was in 1961 when President Eisenhower coined the phrase military-industrial The importance of defense spending relative to the overall economy is much smaller today than it was back in 1961. Still significant. It's not trivial, but it's not nearly as great. My, my problem with the discussion of military-industrial complex is that there are some critics of U.S. policy who tend to see the military-industrial complex as kind of an all-purpose boogeyman. Drive a stake through the mick, they seem to think, and all will be good. And I think that that represents a 
significant oversimplification with regard to the actual underpinnings of American globalism, which are ultimately ideological, almost theological, as well as structural. If you want to drive a stake through something, then go after the concept of American exceptionalism. Go after this claim that we are God's new chosen people. Go after this notion that we are called upon to save the world. Go after this notion that because we are called upon to save the world, we're permitted to exercise prerogatives allowed to no other nation. For example, preventive war. There, in this pernicious notion of our specialness, there may lie the ultimate explanation for our inability to think creatively and realistically when it comes to national security policy. Thank you very much. Thanks to each of you for your uh, excellent opening provocative remarks here. Let's, uh, let's move to a, a couple of questions. First, uh, let me ask each of you about the continuing problem of sexual assault in the U.S. military. Over the past generation, women have joined uh, the armed forces in much larger numbers than, than ever before. And numerous careful studies, occasional public scandals have demonstrated that the threat and the reality of sexual assault remain large-scale challenges in the military. So, how pervasive a problem do you think sexual assault is in today's armed forces, and what needs to be done to address it? Mr. Chalet, first. Uh, well, I can't speak to how pervasive the problem is, but it is a problem, and it's an unacceptable problem. Uh, it's something that the Secretary of Defense, Secretary Hagel, has been extremely focused on, very outspoken about, and worked very closely with the Congress on trying to find ways to address. Uh, we, the military has, has been a leader in the United States over many decades of helping institute social change, whether it's racial integration uh, several decades ago to obviously the role of women in the military that's continuing to evolve today as women take on combat roles, uh, to Don't Ask, Don't Tell just a few years ago. So the sexual assault problem, which has been uh, much discussed in the press and some, some very unfortunate uh, incidents have come to light, is something that the secretary, the entire Pentagon leadership, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs takes extremely seriously. Uh, and we're working closely with members of Congress to find a way that we can both address the, the, the long-term issue, which is making sure that this doesn't happen again, to then also dealing with the, uh, how you handle these incidents as they come out and, how, and to ensure that, that there's adequate uh, measures taken for those who are to conduct such acts. But it clearly has no place in our military. Well, I mean, I think it's important uh, to recognize that civilian society has not fully resolved these matters. You know, it's not as if sexual assaults happen in the uniformed military and nowhere else in our country. I think it's also important for us to 
acknowledge the, 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 uh, the reporting complexities, and I'm by no means an expert on this, but you have a difficult time measuring the actual number of sexual assaults because we're not quite sure how, what percentage of them actually get reported. You could actually have a, a number of sexual assaults decreasing, but the reported number may be increasing simply because of creating an atmosphere in which <clears throat> victims of assault would be more willing to come forward than they would have been previously. So the numbers are, are difficult to get a grip, grip on. But the bottom line, it seems to me, is, is the cultural one. I, I actually disagree with the, the argument that the military has been out in front of social change. I read it somewhat differently that the services accommodate themselves to the necessity of change. You know, take, take the example of race. Uh, 1948 was when Harry Truman, as president, issued an executive order directing that racial segregation would end in the military. And it would be nice to think that all the generals and admirals stood up and said, yes, Mr. President, it shall be done. That actually is not the case. Two years later, in 1950, when the Korean War began, the U.S. Army was deploying all Negro, as we called them in those days, all Negro units to Korea. That is to say, the Army had not desegregated. The Army desegregated during the course of the Korean War, not because the Commander-in-Chief had ordered it back in 1948, but because General Matthew Ridgway, Ridgway who was the commander of U.S. forces in Korea at the time, decided that given all the complexities of managing this very difficult war, the one thing he didn't want to have to worry about is whether the newly arrived infantryman was black or white in trying to figure out where that soldier would be assigned. So the army did desegregate in Korea for reasons unrelated to issues of racial injustice. And quite frankly, to the extent that the military has indeed welcomed a much larger percentage of the force is now is female, it's because service leaders recognized after the draft ended that if they're going to have any chance of filling the newly created all-volunteer force with capable people, they're going to have to permit a larger number percentage of women to join. Now, the generals and admirals thought, this is like back in the 1970s, we'll let them come in under our terms. Of course, this was just as the modern women's movement was really gathering steam, and women said, not necessarily women who were serving, women said, we ain't going to serve on your terms. We insist to serve on our terms, terms that permit equality. Bunch of fights, you know, bunch of fights about whether women would be in the cockpit, bunch of fights about whether women would serve on combat ships, bunch of fights about whether women would serve in submarines, and so on and so on and so on. And you know the, the upshot. The upshot is that to a very large extent today, 
not entirely, that there's genuine gender equality in the military. But again, not because the male military leadership was enlightened on these matters, but because for very pragmatic reasons, they needed to make concessions to women demanding to be treated equality as, a, as the price to be paid for maintaining this flow of women into the service. So the army has, the army, the military definitely has a problem with sexual assault. They need to get it out of the newspapers, among other things. But I'm, frankly, I'm glad it's not my problem because it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult one, deeply rooted in biology, if, uh, if nothing else. Let me ask you uh, about a different issue then, about drones. Both uh, threats and weapons continue to evolve with technological innovations creating new tools uh, for the U.S. Armed Forces. And the use of drone warfare in places such as Pakistan and Yemen, most prominently, has an obvious appeal in providing a seemingly risk-free way to target identified enemies. But drone warfare has not been perfect, and its killing of non-combatant civilians uh, has created political backlash against the United States abroad. And critics also suggest that the use of drone weapons further distances Americans from the wars that are waged in their names and with their tax dollars. So what place do the two of you think drones should have in U.S. foreign policy today? And let's start with Professor Basevich. Well, again, this, I think this is where the two of us differ a little bit. Uh, I, I, I understand the basis of President Obama's claim that we are ending a, per a long period of wars. And that's true in the sense that, as an outsider, uh, it appears to me that this administration has, has recognized that invading and occupying countries in the Middle East is a bad idea, and they don't want to do that anymore. But war does not consist simply of invading and occupying countries. And I would argue that what the Obama administration has done is to devise a different approach to perpetuating the wars that it's essentially began in the wake of 9-11. And the different approach is one that, that uh, avoids, tries to avoid large-scale use of ground combat forces, emphasizing instead both drones and also special operations forces. But it's war that continues. Now, with regard to drones in particular, although I think you could probably make the argument with special operations forces as well, the current concern, I think, is, is, this, is the absence of a strategic rationale. Again, war is about using violence to achieve political purposes. What is the overarching political purpose that we think we are going to gain through a protracted campaign of assassination? Now, do we think that if we assassinate enough bad guys, terrorists, radical Islamists, that the result will be that we will exhaust the supply of radical Islamists? Were we to be able to do that, we'd win. The threat would go away. But what if, in assassinating bad guys, 
and occasionally inadvertently killing people who are not bad guys. What if the effect is simply to create new bad guys? What if the effect is to spread the poisons of anti-Americanism among people who don't understand why it is that the United States of America gets to dump hellfire missiles out of the sky whenever the President of the United States feels like it. If that's the case, then it seems to me there is the absence of a clear strategic rationale suggests that this alternative approach, we don't invade and occupy countries, we just use this more sanitized version of warfare, is not likely to be more successful. Um, so let's, let's start with the purpose uh, and just the reality that we face as we're sitting in countless meetings in Washington trying to sort out what to do about certain problems. There are people all around the world who want to kill Americans, full stop. Uh, it is what it is. It's not something that I would argue that our behavior causes them necessarily to want to do, but it's a reality. So our first, uh, our fir our first sort of resort is to work with a host government, the, the government, they're the sovereign government where these folks may be, to try to get them to do something about a problem. We see, we have reason to believe a, a terrorist or terrorist group is planning an operation uh, in a particular part of the world, and we're obviously very interested in working with that host government to try to do something about it. But there are instances in which a host government is unable or unwilling to do so. So as policymakers, as people responsible for your well-being, we're confronted with a question. What do we do? Now, we could do nothing. We could say this is a problem worth just running the risk of not doing anything about it, and maybe suffer the consequences and be held accountable for those consequences. Or we could do something. And I think as, as Professor Basevich has pointed out uh, many times in his writing and just today, there are incredible risks with action. There are also risks within action. So what we try to do is calibrate those risks and find a way forward. Now, on the specific issue of drones, the president uh, has, uh, has spoken to this. I would really commend all of you to read uh, a speech that he gave at the National Defense University last May, in which he talked more than any president ever has openly about the use of this technology in warfare. First, on the technology itself, drones are a fact, they're a reality. We're not the only country in the world who's got them. In fact, other countries are developing the capability quite quickly, and they're going to proliferate around the world. That's going to be a challenge for policymakers for decades, is the United States is, is not the only power with capable drones, but other countries, some of which may not necessarily wish us well all of the time, having this kind of uh, technology as well. But, but uh, you know, it raises certain ethical questions, strategic questions on when you use uh, drones. The President's made clear our first, when, when we see a, a, a terrorist or someone who does not wish us well, our first uh, wish or desire would be to handle this by uh, capturing this person. And although that runs incredible risks to our forces, it could also run incredible risks to the civilian population, more so than drones. If that's not available, then this sort of technology is, is what's considered. Now, the President and the, and the White House and the Defense Department have put in uh, certain procedures in place to ensure that there's oversight. And through Congress is involved, to ensure that the, uh, the legal authorities are in place. So when we do this, we do so in a way that we think we know we've got it right or we think we've got it right. And all of the risks are weighed. But 
it's not good enough. And one of the things the president made clear in the speech that he la uh, laid out last May was that he wants to work with the Congress to come up with a system that's better, that's going to outlast his presidency. Because we may feel good about the system we've put in place in this administration, but that's not to say that the next president or the president after that would choose to do something differently. So the administration's embarking on a process to work with the Congress to come up with a system in which this technology could be used in a way that gives you all confidence that we're doing so as responsibly and thoughtfully as we can, understanding that there are genuine risks in doing so, but also understanding that there are genuine risks in not taking action when we believe that something bad is about to happen. Let me, let me return now to uh, an issue that, that emerged in Professor Basevich's opening remarks, which is the question of the all-volunteer military force in the United States. Since one of the, uh, the most important turning points in modern American military history came in 1973 with the ending of the draft and the creation of, of the AVF or the AVM, uh, and uh, I want to make sure that Mr. Slay in particular gets a, a chance to address this. Uh, do you think that defending the nation's security should, in fact, be an equal obligation of all citizens? And would a renewed military draft affect the way our nation makes decisions about war and peace, such as the decision to invade Iraq in 2003? So I... So first on the all-volunteer force, I think we agree the all-volunteer force is one of the reasons why our military is as capable as it is, it has such high standards so that issues like sexual assault become such huge problems in terms of we want to ensure that the military lives to the highest standards possible beyond even common citizens. Uh, there are high expectations on our military and our military is the best trained and most capable force in the world. And a large part of that is because the people who serve in our military want to serve in our uh, that said, and I think this is an area where we agree, there is a problem with service in our country. Uh, we both have been in public service. Uh, we believe in public service. But it is a problem when only 1% or maybe less than 1% of our population serves in the military. Uh, and I think that it, it, it would be good if more people served. And I think you know, one of the, my messages to, to young people is that Public service is a great thing, and it doesn't just mean serving in the military. It can be serving your community, serving your church, uh, serving government in some other capacity, because I think all of us are part of this. We, all, we, own, we own this country, and we should feel invested in it. Uh, but I, I don't think the causality between the all-volunteer force and our uh, uh, willingness to use force around the world it, it really works. I mean, I, I think that I don't see the, the president or the secretary of defense or the chairman of the Joint Chiefs uh, less anguished about the use of force or the potential use of force because everyone in the military happens to be a volunteer rather than a draft. I mean, the decisions weigh heavily uh, on our leaders, and I don't see a different. I don't know that it would make a big difference if there was a draft. And I think, particularly uh, given the experience we've gone through post 9/11 in Iraq and Afghanistan, where we have uh, uh, had so many veterans produced out of those wars. The National Guard and Reserves have been used in ways that many of those who joined the Guard and Reserves did not think that they were going to be used in terms of combat deployments, that the country felt the cost of those wars. Uh, the Congress felt the cost of those wars. You felt the cost of those wars. So I'm just not convinced that what we would give up uh, in having a draft and getting, and getting rid of the all-volunteer force in terms of our capability and abilities would actually make much of a difference in the question of use of using the military abroad that our leadership faces. Okay. Other thoughts on this? Well, it's, 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 a, it's a tough call. <clears throat> but, um, I mean, the counter-argument is that if uh, 
a larger percentage of the population felt it had skin in the game, that not, not, not necessarily would change the temper of a discussion in the Oval Office about whether to go to war, <clears throat> but it might animate the public a little bit more to be pay attention. And that could have some effect. You know, it's a fact that at the time of the invasion of Iraq, in the House and the Senate put together, was one member of Congress who had a child serving as an enlisted soldier. One. What if 100 members of Congress had had children as young enlisted soldiers, meaning those who were going to be the most vulnerable? Uh, would that have changed the tenor of the conversation? It's hard to say for sure. <clears throat> but my argument, which by the way is not an argument for the draft, I think that, I think that, that rather than considering a restoration of the draft, we should be considering the creation of a program of national service, which would bring about this civic engagement, sense of civic obligation, where military service would be one option among many. So not draft, national service. But the other argument here, I think, is has to do with the, uh, the, the that the nation wages more wages wars more effectively when they are fought with a citizen army. And here I think the comparison is, let's make the comparison with uh, the Civil War. You remember back in 1861, both sides, you don't remember, you remember the story. Both sides were persuaded that it was going to be a short war. You know, the Union Army and the Confederate Army, they were going to trot out into Virginia and, and beat, each other the, uh, beat each other up over the course of an afternoon, and one side would quit, and either the South would have achieved independence or the Union would be restored. That turned out to be a very naive, naive expectation. Long war, many battles, bloody. And because Abraham Lincoln had a citizen army, in which citizens were invested, a cause in which citizens were invested. He turned to the country after first bull run and said, need a bigger army. And the people of the United States responded by creating a citizen army that by 1865, somebody in here will have the number better than I will, numbered more than a million men under arms. It took two days for the Union Army to parade past the White House in the victory parade after Appomattox, just to have the soldiers march past. Because Lincoln could go to the people, could say, in this country where citizens have an obligation to serve, I need your service. Well, President Bush, back in 2003, also miscalculated. He thought that knocking over Saddam Hussein was going to be a relatively easy task, and that once we got to Baghdad, we'd declare victory and everybody would go home and it'd be a wonderful thing. We got to Baghdad, we overthrew Saddam Hussein, and we found ourselves in a huge mess where we no longer had citizens invested in the notion of military service. President Bush didn't have the option of going to the country and saying, you know what, I'm going to need a million-man army to correctly occupy and pacify Iraq. 
because it wasn't our war. So what did he do? We went to the Allies, and the Allies said, well, we'll give you six of these and seven of those, but not really a significant addition to U.S. forces. So what did he do? He hired contractors. He hired mercenaries, people at an exorbitant cost who were assuming responsibilities that in any previous war would have been fulfilled by citizen soldiers. And maybe the jury's out a little bit, but I have to tell you my view is that they cost a heck of a lot and they didn't get the job done. So the argument for, for, a, for restoring the tradition of the citizen soldier is in part an argument based on maybe the country had paid more attention before it dashed off in some cockamamie war, but it's also an argument that says that when we do find ourselves in a war, we'll have a military system that has greater elasticity and therefore give us a greater chance of actually concluding the war on favorable terms, which again, at, at the end of the day, is the object of the exercise. This is the time in the evening where we bring more voices in when the ushers begin to, if they will, hand out note cards uh, to the audience. And you're welcome to write a question on a card and to uh, send it down to the end of the row where the ushers will collect them and then gather them and uh, they'll come floating back up via unknown processes to me. And I'll be delighted to select a few of them out for our for our distinguished speakers here. While we're doing that, in the meantime, while the ushers are at work, and thank you ushers, you're always wonderful at this, uh, I do want to go ahead and ask one other question as, as you're gathering those, and that is about the relationship of the armed forces with American popular culture, the American populace in general. Do you think that most American civilians understand and appreciate what American military personnel do in their jobs? Uh, and are there ways in which the relationship between the armed forces and civilian society should be improved? Professor Basich. Well, I mean, this is basically the topic of the book that I'm going to try to get you to buy when we're all done. <laughs> he didn't pay this me is, to ask this question, I promise. And I'm... I, I, I believe that there is a growing awareness that there's something not right in the claims made on, by Americans that we support the troops. That, that phrase uh, that has become so commonplace, I think, in our discourse, thank you for your service, It's not good enough. It's, it, it's, it's too easy. It's an example of, uh, many of you know of, you didn't know, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German martyr and theologian, who in the 30s, after Hitler came to power in Germany, basically led a movement to break away from the Orthodox Protestant Christian, uh, establishment Protestant Christian church in Germany to found what he called a confessing church. And his critique of the 
establishment church was that it had allowed itself to be compromised by collaborating with uh, the Nazis while still congratulating themselves for being faithful followers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Bonhoeffer said that that was what he called cheap grace. This, this being too quick to pat yourself on the back when it's utterly undeserved, when in fact you ought to be examining your conscience. And I think this superficial, these superficial expressions of affection for the troops, the Budweiser commercial during the Super Bowl, I think this is an example of cheap grace. That if indeed we support the troops and care about the troops, then that should impose obligations to go well beyond cheering or buying beer. Uh, and, and, that, and that to some degree we ought to be examining our consciences about how, in my view at least, we've allowed the troops to be abused and misused uh, and we ought to feel pretty uncomfortable about that. Thank you. Well, I've, uh, I've, I've read uh, Andrew's most recent book. It is a terrific book, so I highly recommend it. My books are far less interesting, so I'm not even going to try to make the case you should buy them. Um, but I, on this question, I have to say I'm, I'm a bit torn um, because I, 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 one of the most powerful parts of your book is the very beginning where you talk about a sporting event uh, that goes to a Red Sox game. Uh, where you, um, you know, you've talked about what we see at all of our games. You see it every, every Husker game, every Saturday, the, the affection for the troops. And on the one hand, that's a good thing. And I think that that's something that obviously it comes out of a legacy in which, a bad legacy of ours, which is where we didn't treat troops the way they should have been treated after, after they served our country. And, and it's a reminder to all of us that we should honor those who serve and we should respect the contributions and the sacrifices they and their families have made for you. For us, that's a good thing. But it is not enough. I agree with that. I don't think it's enough just to say, well, I did my obligation. I cheered for some, uh, for some folks who just returned from Afghanistan, some wounded warriors maybe, and I clapped, and that's all I need to do, and, and good on me for giving them a, a nice good cheer. you got to do more than that. One of the things we've been trying to do as a government, working with the private sector, is to try to find opportunities for those who've come back from service. Just yesterday in the Wall Street Journal, the First Lady, Mrs. Obama had an op-ed talking about an initiative that she and Dr. Jill Biden, uh, the vice president's wife, have started through the Joining Forces Initiative to help hire 100,000 uh, veterans uh, from Iraq and Afghanistan with, uh, with construction companies around the country. And their, their aspiration is to hire 100,000 in the next five years. That's a good thing. That's something we should absolutely support. And I, I hope that all of our private sector and in all walks of life hire veterans and support them. It's not enough to honor them at games. But that is a good thing, and it, it, it's, a, it shine, it's a sign of respect, but it's not enough. It shouldn't be a substitute at all. Thank you. Okay. So uh, this is for initially for uh, the Mr. Assistant Secretary. Have we abdicated our position of global leadership to Russia? And as an example of this, uh, is an example of this Syria. Do you agree? No, I don't agree. Uh, Russia is... Um, 
clearly playing a role in Syria. In, in our view, it's, it's been largely a negative role in their supplying of the Assad regime uh, with, with weaponry and their support in the international community. I don't think the U.S. has abdicated any responsibility or leadership. I think sometimes those who measure responsibility or leadership measure it only through the military instrument, and they say, well, if we're not at war, or we're not using force, or we're not bombing something, then somehow we're not leading, or they're not taking responsibility. Uh, when in fact in Syria, we've made the judgment that the application of U.S. military power in the Syrian conflict wouldn't necessarily make that any better. It's already terrible enough as it is. So U.S. power is better used uh, to support the diplomatic effort, to support uh, our friends and allies that are bordering Syria and dealing with the horrible consequences and instability that is being caused by Syria, and by supporting and trying to build up and strengthen the moderate opposition that's right now uh, at the negotiating table today. They returned to Geneva uh, for talks with the Syrian regime to try to have a diplomatic solution to this conflict. That's only happening, I would argue, because the U.S., largely through our diplomats, through Secretary Kerry and his team, has, has uh, moved out with great energy and diplomatic leadership. That's not abdicating responsibility. That's using different instruments of our power, not the military tool primarily, but the diplomatic tool, but it's leadership nonetheless. Thoughts on Syria, American leadership, Russia? I, you know, you, 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 you have to be a little bit careful probably. I mean, I, Russia is not, Russia is a power of the second order. Uh, now they got nuclear weapons, not trivial. Uh, they have their stock of resentments, I think, carried over from the way the Cold War ended, to some degree reinforced by the way we treated Russia when the Cold War ended. But if one, if one were to think about which countries we should be worrying about uh, over the course of the next 40 or 50 years, uh, I don't think Russia's gonna be in the top tier. So I wouldn't overstate the Russia problem. Could you uh, please address recent cheating scandals in the nuclear missile silos and at other branches of the armed services? I'll take the first sure. shot at sure. that. Uh, mm -hmm. It's, it's uh, like the sexual assault issue. It's something mm -hmm. that Secretary Hagel has been seized with recently, and he just spoke to this. He and Chairman Dempsey, uh, our chairman of the Joint Chiefs, spoke to this on Friday. Uh, these cheating scandals and assorted other personnel scandals uh, with, associated with the military have been a huge concern for, for the department. Um, and there's various measures that Secretary Hagel is putting into place to ensure that we can get to the bottom of all of this, uh, including uh, appointing a very senior military official, a flag officer, uh, three-star general, to work in his office to report to him directly on these issues uh, day in and day out. Uh, so it's, it's, it is a huge problem, and it's one that we're trying to get to the bottom of, and it's also one that we've got to seek to mitigate. That said, and, and the secretary has been equally adamant on this point, is that uh, you know we, we don't want these scandals to sort of paint a broad, with too broad of a brush about uh, in, the, in the Air Force's case, are missileers, um, because the vast majority of these folks are doing their job, they're doing it very well, they are patriots, they are people who are sacrificing for us, and oftentimes, and particularly in the, in the missile world, uh, often f largely forgotten by us, because the Cold War seems to be over, and many people forget that we have men and women sitting in silos on 12-hour shifts, uh, preparing to defend us if necessary. 
And so just 10 days ago when I was flying back from Europe with Secretary Hagel, he made some phone calls to um, folks who were manning the missile silos uh, that day and just to let him know he was thinking about them, that, that they were on his mind, but also to hear from them about how they, at, at the enlisted level, folks on the, you know, doing the job, how they are being affected by all of these stories and the scandals. Well, I think that, uh, you know, these are institutions that consist of human beings, and human beings are fallible, and, uh, you know, to, to, to some degree, one should not overreact. We have a cluster of these things happening right now that makes it a little bit more disturbing and sort of captures more public attention. But I think were I Secretary Hagel or General Dempsey, the JCS chairman, I think where I'd want to put my spotlight is on what's going on in the realm of senior leadership. If we've got cheating scandals, corruption scandals, uh, then flag officers are failing in their responsibility to establish climates within their command that would not necessarily completely prevent these things from happening, but would certainly ensure that they are rare. So what's going on with our senior uniform leadership? To what degree have the stresses and strains of the past decade plus of permanent war affected the senior leadership? Has it, has it led to compromising standards? Has it led to selecting people for promotion who should not have been promoted in the first place? Has it led to an environment where there's just too much going on and too many people going in too many places that there's inadequate supervision? Uh, I think that, I don't know what the problem is, but that would, it would be at that level that I would seek a solution to the problem. Uh, th these are not issues that a Secretary of Defense ought to have to, have to worry about, uh, because we have two-star, three-star, four-star people who ought to be setting and maintaining the kind of professional standards that we expect. What do you believe is the best solution to the proliferation of Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda-associated groups in the Middle East and Northern Africa, if not the use of our military forces? Professor Bresovich? Well, you know, a lot more, you know a lot more than I do, but let, 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 me, let, let me be the, I'll lay down the straw man. You okay, can, good, you sounds good. Swat it away. Okay. <laughs> uh, I take seriously what I think are the reports, and that is that Al-Qaeda has been ser seriously depleted over the course of the past uh, decade plus. Now we've got these franchises, so-called. Now I'm, I'm a little bit reluctant to see them as posing an existential threat to the United States of America. I mean, I think we have a, have a sense of proportion about the extent of the threat, not disregard the threat, but this is not the Soviet Union with ICBMs. But beyond that, I think there are very difficult political and strategic questions that perhaps because they're so difficult, 
don't get the kind of attention they deserve. Why do these people hate us and want to kill us? Big question, lots of answers. I think one very important answer to which I subscribe is that there is a broader crisis in the, in the Islamic world and that the essence of that crisis is finding ways to reconcile religious belief with modernity something that we in the West did, more or less, as a result of the Enlightenment, which resulted in, very broadly speaking, the privatization of religion and its exclusion except for symbolic purposes from the public sphere. The little I know about Islam suggests that that process of reconciliation is even more difficult given that religious tradition in comparison to the Christian tradition, which is the predominant one in the West. But at the end of the day, that's, the, that's where the answer lies. And there I think the question is, well, what can we do to further that process of reconciliation? I think one thing we ought to have learned from the last decade is having a bunch of U.S. troops bumbling around does not help that process. That what it really does is to, exas it exacerbates the conflict. And, and we present ourselves as convenient targets. So strategically, how do you, how, what I'm about to say is, don't ask me how I, exactly how I would implement it in specific terms. Strategically, it seems to me, what we have an interest in is getting out of the way while they solve their problem and in the meantime trying to protect ourselves from any adverse effects as they have this great intra-civilizational argument. Which again, to my mind, means lower our military profile. Um, well, that wasn't much of a straw man. I agree with a lot of that. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so there you go. I, um, well, look, I think the, 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 the underlying issues are economic, they're social, they are religious, uh, they are questions that are extraordinarily difficult for any one country or any combination of countries to try to tackle. Uh, I think we are trying to lower our profile. We are, that's one of the rationales of getting out of Iraq is that we weren't contributing uh, uh, to a positive outcome by staying there. Uh, and that um, what's happening, though, in Iraq is quite violent. It's quite ugly, but we're not part of it right now. Uh, I think that, that you're absolutely right. We, there are many f sort of franchises or non-franchises, uh, uh, but they're still uh, uh, terrorist affiliates. Uh, someone, a friend of mine calls this, uh, this is the, the Burger Queen syndrome. And what that means is in Cairo, uh, they, they didn't have Burger Kings, but they had Burger Queens. But if you went into a Burger Queen, you thought you were in a Burger King because it had something that, like the Whopper, and some, but it was not part of the franchise technically, but it looked a lot like it. So what we have popping up in too many parts of the world are terrorist versions of Burger Queens, uh, where they look like Al-Qaeda, they're certainly Islamic terrorists, but they're not necessarily Al-Qaeda, and they are a threat to the United States. They may not be a threat to our homeland, but they could be a threat to an embassy. They could be a threat to an oil facility somewhere. 
Now, they're not 10 feet tall, and we shouldn't make them 10 feet tall, but nevertheless, they are a concern. And there are expectations that all of you would have, and you should have, that we're doing our most to protect our diplomats and protect uh, uh, our allies against these threats. But using the military instrument alone to try to solve them is not going to get it done. Uh, we need to do it in combination with other things. Now, in a lot of places around the world, take Egypt, for example, where we have a very close relationship with them. We have a very close military relationship. We have a very close political relationship. The United States is not occupying Egypt right now. But nevertheless, Egypt is undergoing a dramatic historic transformation. I'm not sure where it's going to end up. But I know we have a huge stake in how it ends up. We have a huge political stake. We have a huge strategic stake. We have a huge security stake. So I wish there were a civil bullet. This has been one of the, the in terms of dealing with Islamic extremism, this has been one of the, the efforts that the administration really from day one has tried to tackle. The president, of course, famously went to Cairo in the spring of 2009 and gave a speech about US outreach to the Muslim world. But we have seen, and what we are seeing in that North Africa throughout the Middle East is a transformation that is not since the fall of the Ottoman Empire have we seen. And how that's going to play out is still yet to be seen, but we have a huge stake in how it plays out. One last question for, for brief, uh, brief answers from each of you. Um, do you think, and, and my apologies to those whose questions were not able to be asked, these are excellent and there are many of them, too many good ones, but do you think there is still a role for one global hegemon? No. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that we will continue to be the most powerful nation on earth through the 21st century. But there's also no doubt in my mind that we're not going to be, uh, it's not going to be a unipolar order, as uh, somebody once asserted, that we are moving into a multipolar world. Uh, where there are going to be a number of nations whose interests are going to have to be taken into account and accommodated if we're going to have some semblance of, if we're going to avoid the kind of catastrophic wars that resulted when we last had a multipolar order and it imploded 100 years ago this year. And I think that's the, the, the really big question of the 21st century as far as our own well-being, is not what are we going to do about Islamic radicalism. I'm not dismissing that, but I don't think that's the big challenge. The big challenge is how are we going to cobble together this multipolar order so that the several great powers are going to be able to live, are going to be able to coexist, not live in peace, harmony, and brotherly love, but just coexist. Uh, the U.S., China, India, Japan, EU, yes, Russia, maybe Turkey, maybe Brazil. How are these countries going to be able to share, establish boundaries, define prerogatives, establish lines that we will respect? That's the big thing we face. I totally agree with that. I think uh, the, the argument that the U.S. was ever a hegemon, all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful was overblown. Uh, it was never that way. We don't seek it. I don't think it's realistic. I don't think it's in our interest. Uh, that said, we, we do play a unique role in the international system because of our values, because of our economy, because of our capabilities, because of the inspiration that so many of the world, around the world draw from us. And 
that's a, that's a burden in some ways. That's a, that's a responsibility that we have. Um, people look to us. They want to know what we think. They, wanna, they want more U.S. involvement, not less. Uh, but that said, it doesn't mean that, that our job should be or can be in this day and age being the unipole or being the hegemon. Those are big political science terms. But what it means is being in charge of everything. That's not what we seek. That's not what we should speak. And I don't think that's realistic anyway. The challenge we're going to face is we're going to have a non-polar world because it, the idea that states can act as poles where they're sort of in their own kind of cylinders and they, they interact, they, they're not mixed together, is not the 21st century. I mean, it's state sovereignty means less today. State, this idea of statehood is changing before us. Citizens are integrated and, and are able to communicate with one another like never before. It's one of the huge challenges for statecraft because uh, what, is, what does a diplomat do or know differently than what common citizens can do or know when they interact with one another? So that's going to be a challenge for our government moving forward. Um, it's a challenge for us today. Thank you. Well, this is, uh, this is the, as we get to the end of the evening here, um, perhaps we could just offer one last opportunity for a, a brief minute or two of reflection from either or both of you, if you have things that have come up or, or have not come up in the discussion here uh, that you, you think the audience should take with them this evening as they think about the U.S. military, its current situation, and its future. I if I could just, first of all, thank all of you uh, for being here. I think this forum is extremely important uh, because it's an opportunity for all of you to be engaged and to hear from folks you agree with, from you disagree with, folks you may not otherwise have a chance to, to, to spend an evening with, and hear about the issues that we as citizens uh, are facing, and to have a voice and to have, have your opinions heard. Uh, again, I don't expect people to walk out of here having agreed with anything either of us have said, but this is a very important part of citizenship to do this. So first, I want to thank you uh, uh, for coming. Second, in terms of our role in the world, and I, I think I want to end where I ended my, my opening remarks, which is despite the mistakes we've made, despite the fact we don't get it right every time, uh, the United States is a force for good. And, and uh, Andrew mentioned this phrase, indispensable nation, which is a phrase that's been kicked around a lot over the last 15, 20 years since President Clinton first used it in 1996. And President Obama uses it. He just moved, used it several weeks ago in the State of the Union. When, when, when we use that phrase, it's not, as, it's not that we're the global hegemon. It's not that we believe that our way is the right way. It's that for better or for worse, whether we like it or not, there are many problems out around the world that are not solved, that cannot be solved, without the United States playing a role. Sometimes it's a leadership role. We have to be the ones bearing most of the burden. Sometimes we are uh, in the background, and we're providing a unique capability here and there to help solve a problem. But it's, it, more often than not, all these big problems are not going to be solved without the United States. In my job, when I work constantly with, with foreign officials coming into my office, I'm traveling overseas meeting with them. I can't think of any meeting that I've been in where people are asking less of us. In every meeting I'm in, they're asking for more. They're asking for more of our involvement, they're asking more of, of our ideas, more of our time, more meetings, more of our stuff. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's very rare that I, we're ever in a meeting where someone says, boy, thanks United States, we'd really like you to just get out of the way and go home and not be involved at all. They're asking more. Now that's a burden. That's a burden on public officials. That's a burden on all of you as taxpayers. 
but it's a burden that, that we carry proudly. It's one that is really, I think, at the root of, of what our country's all about. And it, it is a unique country. It's a country that, that not every country around the world is, is an inspiration for others. There's a lot of countries around the world that people would want to see a lot less of in their, in their regions or in their, in their uh, issues. So that's something I always try to keep in mind going about doing my job is we're tackling these really tough problems that don't have easy answers. There are no silver bullets. No matter what you do, you get criticized by somebody in the press or you know, one of your friends or family at home. Uh, but that's why you just try to go about doing your best, trying to make the decisions, calling it straight, uh, and being willing to suffer the consequences if you get it wrong. And we will get it wrong. But I want to thank all of you for coming and uh, stay engaged. Professor Bass. I think I used up all my profound thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. But I'd, but I'd echo the point. I have to say it's, uh, it's, it's quite heartening uh, that there would be such a large number of you would come out on, where are we, Tuesday? On a Tuesday night in February to uh, discuss these matters. It's a... Uh, Apparently, democracy is alive and well in Nebraska. Let me just remind you finally on your way out that books by both of our guests, multiple books by them, are indeed still available for purchase out in the lobby as you depart. And uh, maybe on that note, you could just join me in one last uh, bit of appreciation for our distinguished guests. Thank you. 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 Thank you.